Welcome to Emergency Medicine Cases Journal Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, coming at you from EMC Studios in Toronto. Today we have with us Justin Morgenstern and two prominent cardiac arrest researchers. In our most popular EM Cases episode to date, on the AHA cardiac arrest guideline controversies, we boldly stated that there's never been an antiarrhythmic medication that has shown any long-term survival benefit in cardiac arrest. Right, Justin? Yeah. So ever since I started practicing emergency medicine, the use of medication in cardiac arrest has been one of those things that we all do, but we all kind of know the evidence isn't great. Yet amiodarone is still in the newest AHA adult cardiac arrest algorithm for V-fib or pulseless VTAC. 300 milligrams IV after the third shock, with the option to give it again at 150 milligrams after that. But I've always wondered what the evidence was for putting amiodarone in that algorithm. Well, there were a bunch of studies that compared either amiodarone or lidocaine to placebo, and they're pretty good studies. There's a couple RCTs, some are observational, uh, but they are small. And, and what did those show, Justin? Well, without getting into too many of the details, these papers showed that antiarrhythmics increased the rate of return of spontaneous circulation and even increased uh, admission to hospital. But none of them were able to show a decrease in mortality or a favorable neurologic outcome at hospital discharge. In other words, there was no long-term survival or functional benefit. Well, that's a bit disconcerting. So let me just get this straight. We've been giving these meds so that we can all high-five each other after we got back ROSC and can proudly say we saved a life, but the same number of folks who we use meds on compared to those who we don't will be alive with acceptable neurological function at hospital discharge. That's right, man. But now we have a large randomized control trial that shines some new light on the role of antiarrhythmics in cardiac arrest. It's the ALPS trial. Amiodarone versus lidocaine versus placebo in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, published in the New England Journal of Medicine just a couple of months ago. And we're incredibly privileged to have the opportunity to speak with two of the authors of that paper today. Yeah, man, not only two authors of the ALPS trial, but Dr. Lori Morrison, who we featured on our cardiac arrest episode, has credentials too long to be listed here. She's a research chair in acute care and EM, a professor and clinical scientist at the University of Toronto, the director of the Rescue Research Program, the past chair of the ACLS Committee of the AHA, and the former program director for the EM Residency Program and director of EM at the University of Toronto. Did I miss anything, Lori? No, you got it. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. And we've got Dr. Paul Dorian, who's new to EM cases. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. And he's kind of a living legend in clinical cardiac electrophysiology and research. Uh, Dr. Dorian, can you just tell us a bit about your professional background? Let me tell you that it's much better to be a living legend than a dead legend. So I prefer living. Uh, I'm the director of cardiology at the University of Toronto, and I've had a longstanding interest in antiarrhythmic drugs and the treatment of life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias from animal work and clinical work. I was fortunate to work with the Toronto EMS service in one of the earlier trials we just heard about, which was called the ALIVE trial, which was a small randomized clinical trial of amiodarone versus lidocaine. And that's how my interest in this EMS world started. And I have the good fortune of working very closely with Dr. Morrison in many research studies. Very cool. Before we get into this trial, do you have any conflicts of interest? I have none. Uh, I don't have any of the usual conflicts, but I have to confess that I started uh, working on the ALPS trial with some ideas based on my previous work and other people's previous work with respect to the potential efficacy of amiodarone. So like everybody else in the universe, I freely admit to being biased. All right. <laughs> so let's get into the ALPS trial. What do you say, Justin? Well, hold on there, Anton. We probably want to give the listeners a little bit of background first. So, Dr. Morrison, in order to understand any new trial, we need to understand current practice. So, what is the standard practice when it comes to antiarrhythmics and cardiac arrest before the ALPS trial? Before the ALPS trial, it was actually amiodarone as well. Um, In 2010, we became very explicit about it and said amiodarone. We actually have some 
understanding of what community practice is from the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium conglomerate, uh, about 250 EMS agencies across North America. Dr. Morrison was the PI of the Toronto Group, but this is across North America. And we looked at the practice of antiarrhythmic drug use in recurrent VF. We found that it was all over the map. Approximately 75% of agencies used lidocaine in some of these cases. About 25 to 30% used amiodarone in some of the cases. Some agencies never used any of lidocaine or amiodarone. Some agencies used both. Many agencies used one or the other. So essentially, we had as close to equipoise in behavior as we can imagine. Okay, it was all over the place. And in the just before we started the trial, I surveyed every emergency department that feeds into southern Ontario. So it was 42 emerges, and every one of them were using amiodarone in the emerge prior to the trial. All right. So, Dr. Dorian, Anton mentioned at the uh, top of the podcast that there has been previous research, some of which you actually conducted yourself. And I understand that giving antiarrhythmics results in more patients getting a pulse back. And that sounds pretty good. But, Dr. Dorian, what's the rationale for using amiodarone or lidocaine in cardiac arrest? So, there's two rationales. One rationale is that when a patient is in ventricular fibrillation, it may be hard to get them out of VF. It requires a cardioversion or defibrillation. Defibrillation doesn't always work. So, there are mostly animal, but some human studies suggesting that some drugs can make it easier to defibrillate, more likely that a shock will result in a perfusing rhythm. My belief is that that's a small part of the potential benefit of antiarrhythmics. We also know is that many patients with ventricular fibrillation outside hospital have recurrent VF. And so we, we should think, in my opinion, of antiarrhythmic drugs as primarily drugs that prevent refibrillation. And we'll see, I don't want to fast forward this, but we'll see in a minute that that is in fact the way that the drugs in Alps may have worked to the extent that they may have worked. Hmm. Could you get into a little bit of nerdy electrophysiology for us there? So when you say prevent refibrillation, how does that actually work? Well, we know that defibrillation in VF works about 80% of the time. If you give a shock, maybe not the first shock, after the second shock, VF is gone for seconds to minutes. Some very good work, observational, in the 1990s told us that about 75% of patients or 50 to 75% of patients who have VF, where the shock gets rid of VF, the VF comes back within usually seconds to a minute or two. And we know that antiarrhythmic drugs are effective at preventing fibrillation in an ischemic myocardium. This is basic and clinical work preventing the electrical circuits from ventricular premature beats from propagating throughout the myocardium in a disorganized fashion, and if you like, preventing R on T PVCs in a hospitable medium from causing VF. And an ischemic myocardium, which is always the case in cardiac arrest, regardless of the cause, when the heart's fibrillating, it becomes ischemic by definition, that is a source for R on T PVCs causing VF. So in my opinion, we should be thinking of antiarrhythmic drugs in cardiac arrest as primarily, not exclusively, drugs that will work to prevent the heart from fibrillating again once we have stopped the fibrillation. That was a really cool explanation. I got it. So getting back to this trial, we know that there was already research in the past on amiodarone and lidocaine. Why did we need this particular trial? The rationale for doing this trial was that all the prior trials had failed to show any survival benefit. And the fact that it showed an increased ROSC in the amiodarone group in both prior trials, and then a equivalent survival to discharge rate suggested to some that the, maybe the amiodarone was toxic to the heart post-arrest. And so they had a higher death rate in hospital. And so for that reason, because we saw good out-of-hospital outcomes, but poor in-hospital outcomes, so we ended up with an equivalent trial in all prior RCTs for survival to discharge. It was justified to randomize patients to placebo, amiodarone, or lidocaine. I agree completely with what Laurie said, but let me give another perspective. There's two possibilities when we have an increased uh, likelihood of survival to admission to hospital and cardiac arrest in terms of long-term outcomes. One possibility is that 
the drugs are saving people to the extent that they get hospitalized, but then they're harming them after, or that basically they're keeping them alive just long enough for them to die in hospital. That is the most pessimistic view of antiarrhythmic therapy. The other possibility, which I think is more likely, is that what these drugs do is they will help patients survive long enough to get to hospital when they would, uh, where they will die from the usual means that they usually die in hospital, which is from the neurologic consequences, brain death of cardiac arrest. In order to separate those two possibilities, we need to look at what I call the in-hospital attrition rate. The question is, what proportion of patients admitted to hospital after resuscitation die in hospital? And the in-hospital attrition rate has historically been about 50 to 60%. It may now be a bit lower with better in-hospital treatments. We don't have any evidence. We have to be very clear from prior studies. We have no evidence that either amiodarone or lidocaine or any other therapy that improves ROSC and admission to hospital makes in-hospital attrition rates higher. The problem is, of course, is that for every two patients admitted to hospital, one of them will die, one of them will survive. So numbers will tell us, for those of us doing clinical trials, that you need at least twice as many patients to be able to show survival to hospital discharge. There's just fewer outcomes. The limited information we have from the trials is that neither amiodarone or lidocaine change in hospital attrition. So in my view, the most likely explanation for the inability of the prior trials to show benefit in hospital discharge is because there just were not enough patients in the trial. It's, however, I completely agree with, with Laurie, it's possible that these drugs were artificially keeping people alive so that they may preferentially die in hospital. And no, I don't think there's any evidence for that supposition. All right, so let's talk methods. So this is a really well-done study. It's multi-centered, it's large, it's randomized, it's double-blinded with allocation concealment. It really has all of those EBM keywords that EBM nerds like me really like to hear. So Dr. Morrison, can you give us a brief summary of what was actually done in this uh, study? What were the different groups and who the patients were? So these are all out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients, and they had to have a witness by the paramedic they had to have VF that recurred at least once. So it was either VF that didn't respond to the first shock, and so therefore it was persistently there the second time they looked, or they had VF that responded to a shock, then they went along in the cardiac resuscitation, and at some point later went back into VF. Either of those scenarios could be randomized in this trial. Okay, I think that's an important point that... In the second group there, the ones that did convert, they went through the algorithm and then they actually had VFib again because those are the patients that we see in the emergency department. Correct. Okay. And in those two, in those two types of patients, the, the paramedics randomized using, as you mentioned, a concealed kit in which they didn't know what they were giving and the patient doesn't know what they're receiving. But it was two vials for anyone over 45 kilos, one vial if you were 45 kilos or less. And then if it recurred, even after the first dose, they got a second vial. So, and these were preloaded syringes, so easy to give, as opposed to the current form of amiodarone, which a paramedic actually has to mix in the back of an ambulance or at scene, so it's messy and slow. The idea with a preloaded syringe was to try to improve the time to drug. In the old trials, both the ALIVE trial that Paul did and the ARREST trial that Pete Kudinchuk did from Seattle, the time to drug was slow. It was in the 23, 24 minutes um, from the time ALS arrived on scene to when the first dose was given. So the preloaded syringe was absolutely pivotal in this trial to try to see if we could shave any of those minutes off because many of us thought that maybe both drugs work really, really well, but they're just given so late in cardiac arrest that we don't optimize the pharmacological effect of the drug. So, Dr. Morrison, I want to reiterate that. So, this is not all comers in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It's the specific subset with refractory ventricular fibrillation or pulseless VTAC. Or recurrent VF. Excellent. So, it's the subgroup with refractory or recurrent VFib or, or VTAC, which means instead of all comers, only about 19% of eligible patients were included in the trial. 
Why did you choose this specific population? Well, because it's the only one where you have an indication to use an antiarrhythmic. And also, it's uh, it's a really important subgroup because that's where most of the survivors in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest come from. And it's where most of us feel we can have the greatest impact. So, Dr. Dorian... You know, this is very difficult research to do. And I just got to say, you and your colleagues all deserve a ton of credit. And one of the difficulties with studying people in cardiac arrest is, well, they're dead. And, you know, we think we can get some people back, but we know there are others who are just plain dead. So now if you include too many truly dead patients, patients who have no chance of recovery in any study, you could dilute out a true treatment effect. This could lead to the false conclusion that an intervention doesn't work even though it may have a real impact in those recoverable patients. So, Dr. Dorian, how do you address this issue of the potential dilution of a treatment effect with truly dead patients when you're developing a trial like this? You are exactly correct. I agree with you completely. When I speak about this or think about this, I think of the analogy to a cancer trial where most of the patients have disseminated terminal metastatic cancer, where one would think a priori that otherwise effective chemotherapy would be less likely to be associated with a good outcome. So we generally pick patients in cancer trials who aren't terminal. The problem is that you cannot tell when the medics get to the scene whether the patient is indeed terminal or not terminal. We tried, obviously, by picking patients who were, whose initial rhythm was ventricular fibrillation. So by design, this trial took patients in that subgroup of cardiac arrest who were l- less dead than others. The least dead patients in cardiac arrest are the ones who have ventricular fibrillation as the initial presenting rhythm. But then we have a very major problem. And the problem is, this is true for medics, it's true for physicians, it's true as a community, it's true in research, it's true clinically. You can't tell when you get to the scene if that person's been down, because you don't know if they were witnessed or not, and even if they were, you're going to do your best. You don't know how long they've been down, you don't know how effective the CPR was, you're not quite sure of all the various times elapsed at the, at the moment. So some of these patients may have had their cardiac arrest five minutes ago, and their outcome is, we know, to be generally not so bad. Some of them may have had their cardiac arrest 35 minutes ago, where their outcome is likely to be very bad. And a priori, one would expect, based on logic and lots of circumstantial evidence, that the probability of a drug helping them is rather small. But you can't tell who's who. So you have to give the drug to everybody and you have to study everybody. And then we're stuck with, in sub-analyses, looking at those subgroups, and it's particularly relevant to the ALPS trial, looking at the subgroups where a priori you would have expected the drugs to work better, i.e. witnessed ventricular fibrillation. But we're not allowed because we have the tyranny of p-values and we have the tyranny of primary outcomes. I'm not saying those are wrong, but we have to consider in logical circumstance that not all primary intent to treat analyses necessarily points to truth. It's a very difficult, we have no answer for this. And so as researchers, we're trying to balance, do we only focus on those patients that we think are likely to have the best outcomes? If we did that, we would be in an impossible situation of asking the medics to figure out with information they don't have is, is this person likely to do well? Well, they just don't have that data. We don't have any metrics on the forehead of the patient that says, I've only been dead for five minutes, please resuscitate me. Or I've been dead for 45 minutes, I don't think I'm going to make it. So we have to include everybody and do sub-analyses and look at the, I hesitate to word, use the word holistic because it's a problematic word, but look at the outcomes of the study in a holistic way. I'm not suggesting we don't look in the standard way at primary outcomes at the ITT population because that's what we should look at. But interpreting these trials is very tricky. Yeah, so I think the subgroups are going to become very important, as we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, there, there were so many tweetable quotes in there. I love <laughs> the tyranny of the p-value. These services that are doing this trial um, have used VF as the initial rhythm in an effort to try to give us that ticker tape on the forehead. So VF as initial rhythm is, I'm not dead yet because I still am fibrillating. And so that's as close as we can get to the I'm not dead group. All right, that was some pretty heavy stuff. 
Let's get on to the, the meat of the ALPS trial, the juicy results. Now, when I first came across the ALPS trial, the one-liner that I came away with was, this was a negative trial. And we probably shouldn't be wasting our time with antiarrhythmics and shock-resistant cardiac arrest. I was thinking, well, why is AMIO in the algorithm in the first place? Let's just get rid of it. So yeah, I'll admit, before this trial was published, I really didn't think these medications were doing a lot of good to patients. And when I caught wind of the ALPS trial, I thought, great, we finally have the nail in the coffin. But then I sat down and actually read the paper a little more carefully, and it seems a little more complicated than that. So Dr. Morrison, let's go into the results. What were the key results of the ALPS trial? So the key results of the ALPS trial was the primary outcome measure was survival to discharge. And... There was no difference in the survival to discharge rates when given amiodarone, placebo, or lidocaine. Let me disagree with that. There was no statistically significant difference. There was a difference. It just did not reach statistical significance. So we can interpret this in two ways. We have to be very careful of the semantics. Absence of proof is not proof of absence. So we cannot prove that the degree of statistical likelihood that we usually associate with positive trials, that either drug was better than placebo. By no means does this prove that the drugs were ineffective. So let me clarify that, because Paul can spin a yarn like nobody's mother. This study was powered to find an increase from 6% survival. We decided as a group of investigators that we had to see a 6% increase in survival because we thought that incremental difference was clinically significant and we should transform practice if we saw that. So we set it up for that. We set it with 90% power, which is why we had to enroll some 3,000 patients in the trial. We observed a 3% difference. So Paul's right. There is a difference, but a priori, we said we wouldn't be convinced to transform practice at anything less than a 6% change. I agree with, with Lori, but it's important for listeners to be aware that the belief with respect to what size difference matters is an empirical and not evidence-based. It's an opinion. We believe that 6% difference between treatment A and B is important and relevant. And by implication, you could argue that the investigators believe that a 3% difference was not relevant. But that's an opinion. That's not a fact. So we could, and in fact, in the paper we discussed this, we could agree to disagree about the magnitude of difference that would be large enough to make this important and a magnitude of difference that is so small that it wouldn't matter. So you can always do a trial, in theory, not in practice, because it would be unaffordable, of a million patients and find a 0.5% absolute difference between treatment A and treatment B and claim statistical significance, but it would be meaningless. The converse is also true, though. If you disagree or you're not sure about how much difference does it take to make something relevant, then you can undershoot. and. Some of us think that we may have, in retrospect, this is in retrospect, undershot to the difference in ALPS, and that may be why things turned out the way it turned out. So this is some great high-level stuff, and it drives right with something we really wanted to talk about with this paper. And there's one key evidence-based topic that I think we should take away from this, and I think that's the concept of significance. And when we talk about significance, there's often two different definitions that we're using. We sometimes talk about statistical significance. And sometimes we talk about clinical significance. So with that in mind, Dr. Durian, can you just briefly describe for us the difference between clinical and statistical significance and why that applies here? It's a great point. I don't like the term clinical significance. I prefer clinical importance just because it removes the semantic ambiguity. Statistical significance uh, relates to the probability that you have accepted that two treatments are different and it's due to the play of chance and not due to the treatment. And conventionally, we say the p-value is less than 0.05, meaning there's less than the 5% probability that that difference arose by chance, but it could have arisen by chance. Some people now think we should have a p-value of 0.01 to further reduce the probability we're accidentally going to find differences that that are due to chance and not real. 
clinical importance is completely arbitrary. Now, in cardiology, we have many treatments, bypass surgery, um, thrombolysis, uh, um, urgent uh, percutaneous intervention in STEMI, in ST elevation MI, the newer antiplatelet drugs, where the absolute improvement in survival is on the order of approximately 1%. That's almost a standard now. If you look at the primary outcome, by the way, of lots of cardiac trials, it's confused by reinfarction and lots of things, but let's just talk about death now to the extent we think that's important. Um, Most large cardiac trials implicitly accept that an absolute difference in survival of 1% or so is worthy of study, implicitly clinically important. And here we're talking about aiming for 6% and missing the mark. In retrospect, arguably, if we had oodles of money that we didn't have, we could have aimed for a larger study looking for a smaller difference. I just want to clarify this. So what we're saying here is that this study, a priori, wanted to get a 6% difference in survival to hospital discharge, but didn't find that, so it was deemed a negative trial. So the one-liner take-home that I took away before that it's a negative trial in fact, that was just kind of what you guys thought would be a good number to use. And in fact, you could have just as easily used a 3% difference to be your significant difference. And then this would have been a positive trial. That's correct. Okay. And so to sum this all up, in your conclusions, you note that in order to actually demonstrate that 3% absolute increase, you would need a trial of 9,000 patients, so almost double what you did here. As insiders, is practically, do you see that happening? Are we going to see that trial in the future? No. It's too expensive. Yeah. It's too complicated. And I think we have a sufficient answer. And just to emphasize, it's 3%, 3.2% for amiodo and it's 26 for Lido. So it's 3% for either antirrhythmic is what we saw over placebo. You had mentioned before that it took on average 19 minutes uh, to deliver the medication in, in the ALPS trial. And that's, that's pretty good. But of course, it would be nicer if we got these drugs into the patients earlier is it possible that amio or lido do work, but we're just not getting them in fast enough? So I think that's an important consideration in this trial. As I mentioned before, there's two groups in the trial. The group that had refractive VF right from the get-go and those that had recurrent VFs. So that may account, when you average it out, the time to needle or time to drug might be swayed to be longer as a mean reported in the paper because it includes those patients who got VF late in the cardiac arrest or, or, or got their recurrent VF that made them eligible for the drug late. And um, so I think an important subgroup that we should look at is the group that was initially in VF stayed in refractive VF and got the drug immediately after. Because we may be able to tease out that early drug was highly, that there was a difference, a huge difference between amiodarone and placebo. We may be able to tease that out if we look just at that group. In one way, when we designed this trial, we tried to get at this by allowing intraosseous administration of the randomized drug because we thought, perhaps incorrectly, we thought that the services that used I.O. would be much faster. But in fact, many use I.O. only when they can't get IV. So it could actually be that the I.O. is given much later than we anticipated. And that that too is dragging out the number and may also explain why the I.O. group didn't show any advantage. Mm, maybe, maybe they should be doing I.O. first. There is some other thoughts is that the EMS services, uh, the EMS medical directors feel that the onus, the emphasis right now when we train is on epi. And it could be, and the way we give amio is epi first and then amio after. It could be that there is a much bigger delay because we're waiting for the epi and we're waiting for the three to five minutes. Um, mm. So there may, some EMS directors have to, having read this paper, have said maybe we should, when we're in VF, go right to amio. Hmm. Or maybe, I mean, I'm just imagining, you know, 
the crew comes, V-Fib, shock. Two IOs, Epi and Amio at the same time. Shock. You know, like just forget about waiting to see what happens. Just throw it all in there. I don't know. I'm it's just... an interesting speculation. If For that to work would require us to believe, for which we have no evidence, that get, giving it IO gets into the circulation. But I wanted to come back to another point is I think we're all interested in trying to see, do these drugs work better as we logically suppose they might if you gave it earlier when the patients are less sick? And there is a way to think about that, albeit in a, in a subgroup. And that is, why don't we focus on the patients where we have pretty good evidence that the total downtime was less? And that's in the group with witnessed ventricular fibrillation. We have oodles of evidence, mostly from observational studies, but I think it's pretty obvious, logically, that if you have witnessed VF, then the time between dropping dead and getting treatment is less than if you have unwitnessed VF. By how much, we obviously don't know. So when you look at the sub-analysis of witnessed cardiac arrest, so witnessed VF getting placebo amiodarone lidocaine, there was a much larger, and as it turns out, statistically significant in the subgroup difference between amiodarone and placebo on the one hand, <clears throat> excuse me, and lidocaine and placebo on the same hand, benefits to the antirhythmics. In unwitnessed ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest, there was essentially no difference or the differences were much less than 1%. So the sub-analysis, with all of the caveats that we have about sub-analyses, but a pre-specified and logical sub-analysis would suggest that if the patient has had less of a downtime, then it is more likely that the drugs, if they are indeed effective, are going to be effective. Yeah, that, that seems to be, for me, the most exciting and interesting <clears throat> point of this trial, was that for a witnessed arrest, if you can get that amio or lidocaine in fast enough, that seemed to make a statistical difference, even though it wasn't the primary outcome. That's basically what I took away from this trial, was that for the witnessed VF, if you can get it in fast enough, or and in the emergency department, if someone goes into VF and you're right there, it's witnessed, that lidocaine or amio is going to make a difference. It's It was 5-6% difference to hospital discharge survival. That's in the bystander witness group. So the bystander witness group, both lidocaine and amiodarone achieved a 5% advantage over placebo, where the confidence intervals around that estimate were above one. So statistically significant, and as you as the clinician, if 5% over placebo is impressive enough for you to be clinically important, then either amio or lido in the bystander witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it would be appropriate to use. So can we clarify that? So these are subgroup analyses. Correct. Uh, in, they're pre-specified, pre-specified subgroup analyses, but in an overall negative trial. So as a clinician, how do you take that information? The trial was negative, but the subgroups look positive. What do you do with that information practically? What should our listeners do with this information on shift tomorrow? I give amiodarone... <laughs> <laughs> right when I see the V-fib right on the monitor there, shock, amiodarone. That's what I do, but I'm, I'm, the listeners are probably much more interested in what Dr. Morrison and Dr. Dorian have to say. So in the, in the bystander witness group, we had this 5% advantage, didn't matter which drug you used. But in the EMS witness, which is what Paul was alluding to, when the paramedic is just standing there by the bedside and the patient had some other reason for calling 911, and then patient subsequently arrests in front of the paramedic, that's EMS witnessed. So that's exactly the same as what you, Anton, face every day in the ED. Somebody arrests in front of you. So the EMS witnessed is the closest model to the ED witnessed cardiac arrest. And in that subgroup of 150 patients, where 111 of them either got amiodarone or placebo, there was an incredible increase of 22% in favor of amiodarone. There's a point I'd like to make here that may not change the way we actually use the drugs, but it's an important consideration. Cardiac arrest is the culmination of a series of severe pathophysiological disturbances, which are very different from each other. So you can get a VF cardiac arrest from acute myocardial ischemia or infarction. 
You can get a VF cardiac arrest from a drug overdose from a drug that prolongs the QT interval with an antidepressant or an antipsychotic. You can get VF cardiac arrest when the VF is caused by the degeneration of sustained ventricular tachycardia to VF with a prior cardiomyopathy. You can get VF from an inherited ion channel abnormality. These are very different disorders with different pathophysiologies, with different ionic consequences, and quite possibly with different responses to treatment. So we have the misfortune of having a condition that we're treating, which is a little bit like treating fever. We don't know if this is a viral infection, a bacterial infection, or a collagen vascular disease. So it's illusory to believe that we can easily explain how one targeted therapy affects all the various different causes. It's a problem. I don't think we can answer this. We're certainly not going to fix it today on this conversation. But that's one of the inherent problems in cardiac arrest research is we're treating a symptom. Yeah. VF is a symptom. It's not a disease. You're speaking to the heart of emergency physicians because three quarters of the time, we're just treating generalities before we can get close to a definitive diagnosis. So we spend a lot of time in research talking about benefits. They're exciting. That's what we want to talk about. But I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about harms because they're also important. So Dr. Doreen, what can you tell us about the potential harms of these medications? Uh, absolutely. In the observations of the, in the clinical trial, the only signal there was was an increased risk of the need for a pacemaker uh, implantation in the group given amiodarone, which would not be terribly surprising because amiodarone we know causes bradycardia. There was no other major signal for evident harms in the study. However, that said, we know that all sodium channel blockers are negatively inotropic. This includes both amiodarone and lidocaine. In this particular study, the diluent that the prior uh, amiodarone formulations was formulated in, was, it's called tween, it's like polyethylene glycol, it's like antifreeze, was also a negative inotrope. But in this study, a new formulation of amiodarone was used. So it's not a consideration, but listeners might still have the old amiodarone available to them. Hmm. That, that's an important consideration there because I'm always worried to use amiodarone in any sick patient because inevitably I end up dumping their pressure right. and they get it, bradycardic. And then I, mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like I feel like from what I actually see in the emergency department that it's just a dirty drug. Yeah. And then there's all the long-term yeah. things, thyroid and pulmonary fibrosis. And I just find it sort of a dirty drug it, that I usually want to avoid. It's, it, 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 it's definitely a dirty drug, which may be a bad thing or a good thing depending on the circumstance. In this study, in the Rock Alps study, there was no evidence of harm between amiodarone, lidocaine, or placebo for that matter. If the problem is primarily electrical, then both drugs seem to have a benefit. Depending on the type of electrical abnormality, maybe amiodarone more so than lidocaine, it is my belief, not shown in the ALPS trial. If the problem is not primarily electrical, but it's primarily metabolic or mechanical, then both drugs might be harmful. From a practical perspective, if you really believe that this is a, an electrical problem, primary cardiac electric problem, they have had an MI and they're in V-fib, those are especially the kind of patients that amiodarone or lidocaine might work for versus the overdose patient. That is correct. Metabolic patient. That is correct. It's much less likely to work based on the pathophysiology even though this trial doesn't show it and there's no hard evidence for this, it would make sense physiologically. When in doubt, we should really be thinking about what the most likely underlying cause is for their V-fib arrest. That is correct. Uh, interpreting large-scale clinical trials is a little bit like uh, interpreting edicts of a religious leader. You can take it literally or you can take it figuratively. You can be a purist or you cannot be a purist. And this is a matter of taste. It's matter of it's not a matter of science. We talk about evidence-based medicine as if evidence were unitary, uh, fully informative, and black and white. It isn't. Science is various shades of gray. No single trial can ever answer all the possible questions. And we've talked about many that are important ambiguities in the interpretation of this trial. So the, this is my opinion, the, the practitioner has to take this trial, incorporate it 
and weighing it importantly in the panoply of evidence because randomized blinded clinical trials are closer to truth than observation. We have to put this trial in the context of everything else we know and believe about patients, about diseases, about drugs, about other observations. And it's difficult, quite frankly. There's no straight avenue to knowing what the best thing is to do. This is in, for the, for those of us that think about these things, interesting, but for the individual clinician, it's vexing. And there is no clear answer. And that, sounds, that, was, that, was, that was beautiful. It sounds like a great reminder of Dr. Sackett's original definition of evidence-based medicine, which is, isn't just literature alone, but it's a literature in combination with clinician expertise yeah. and patient values and expertise. It's all three, not just literature. Absolutely. It's the art and science of medicine, mm-hmm. truly. So there is one big burning question that I really wanted to to ask you today, and that is, if you were to pick a single primary harm outcome for future cardiac arrest research, what would you pick? And let me clarify why I would ask that question. So when I talk to patients, when I talk to friends and family, when I talk to them about dying, it seems that there's a general consensus. It's not universal, but people don't want to spend their dying days in the ICU. And people definitely don't want to survive just to have a bad neurologic outcome. And the reason that I've shied away from using amiodarone in the past is it did look like we were increasing admission to hospital, but without increasing long-term neurologic survival. So how do we think about this more complex type of harm, this increased time in the ICU, this delayed death, or this survival, but with poor neurologic outcome? So in my view, in order to show that a drug is harmful, we would have to have some signal, some type of evidence that the patients who survive after a treatment are disproportionately likely to die a miserable death in the ICU or with substantial cognitive dysfunction. That would be a requirement for us to believe that the drug is harmful. That disproportion does not exist. So I'll come back to the important metric, I believe, which is what is the in-hospital attrition rate? If after a treatment, more patients survive to be admitted to hospital and the same proportion that you normally would have expected to die in hospital still die in hospital, then yes, you've increased the number of admissions and more absolute numbers would have died in hospital, but the likelihood when you're talking to a family in the eMERGE and the patient's on their way up to the ICU, If before the trial or before this drug, you would have said, this is a terrible event, I think your loved one has a 50-50 chance of making it with reasonable cognitive function. And now you use your treatment, amiodarone lidocaine, let's say. If you can still say you've got a 50-50 chance of making it, then I don't think you've caused any harm. Yes, you will have numerically more people die in ICU because you had more numerically people coming into hospital. And you're unable to show benefit of survival to discharge because your study wasn't big enough. We talked about the numbers earlier. I don't think you've done any harm. You've just, if, for example, we have a cancer treatment where 50% of the patients survive and 50% die, and now you have more cancers. You're going to have more deaths from cancer, but you'll still have more chances of survival. It's just harder to prove because you have smaller numbers. If, on the other hand, the in-hospital attrition rate is higher after a drug, that means you're proportionately more likely to die in hospital as a cause of the drug treatment, and you've now changed an out-of-hospital death with all of the disasters personally that that involves to an in-hospital death, which is arguably worse, then you've done patients and their families and the system a disservice. It's not easy to figure out which one is going on, but I think we have to be very careful and not assume that the previous underpowered trials demonstrated harm. They were just unable to demonstrate benefit. So let me just push you on that. Or let's dig into those numbers just a little bit. So let's take your data and forget about statistical significance for a second. So in your data, the amiodarone group had a 6% absolute increase to admission to hospital, but only a 2% absolute increase to discharge with good neurologic function. So that would mean for every three patients that we put into hospital, 
two of them either die in the ICU or have a bad neurologic outcome. So the real question, and, and there is no answer, is what is an appropriate ratio? How do you balance that harm of ICU time or bad neurologic outcome against the benefit, obvious benefit of survival? It's a great point, but my counter to what you just said is that was what would have happened anyway. So the in-hospital attrition rate is high. And I've done a back-of-the-envelope calculation. It's not part of the main paper, but any of the readers can do it just by doing the math. The in-hospital attrition rate, meaning the proportion of patients who are admitted to an ICU who die, is almost exactly the same with all of placebo and lidocaine and amiodarone in the ALPS trial. So that I don't think that patients getting the antiarrhythmic drugs are disproportionately dying. They're proportionately dying. Most of them die in hospital. That's the sad reality of cardiac resuscitation is if you get to an ICU, you've got somewhat just under uh, less than 50-50 chance of surviving. If I was to answer the question, I would say that cardiac arrests who survive, many of them have long and prolonged ICU admissions but many survive. And the majority of those who survive have excellent neurological function. So the good thing about cardiac arrest is that your modified Rankin is really in good shape when you leave the hospital post-arrest, as opposed to other illnesses. There's a great paper that looked at the health utilities index of cardiac arrest patients at one year out. And their health utilities index, that's how I measure my functionality as well as how I feel about myself and the work I'm doing, whether I'm back working. So they're important things to patients. And at one year post-arrest, they were better off than people who live with chronic arthritis. So, you know, if you think about it, having a cardiac arrest and surviving a cardiac arrest, not a bad outcome. So I would say to patients in the ED, if I was counseling, which was your original question, I would say it is worth it. We're making a huge difference post-arrest, and we shouldn't prognosticate based on what's presented in the ED. And those are really good answers. <laughs> I just want to, We've been talking the whole time about antiarrhythmics when shocks don't work. What about dual shock therapy? We had briefly discussed dual shock therapy in our last podcast with Dr. Morrison. And we Morrison. told you to make sure you ask that question of Dr. Dorian. So there's been one observational study that showed that dual shock therapy, that's putting on two sets of pads to a single patient and shocking at the same time with the jewels cranked up all the way uh, on both. One doing the, the so-called sandwich pads, anterior and posterior, and then one, one with the traditional anterior pads uh, within at least a few seconds of each other. And this small study did show uh, some possible benefit. We don't have huge randomized control trial on this, but based on your expertise, Dr. Dorian, what do you think uh, about the value of dual shock therapy? Should we be trying it? Is it something that would be a waste of time and instead we should be giving amio or lidocaine and trying more shocks or different things. What's your opinion on dual well, shock therapy? With respect to the shocks and drugs, I think it's an and, not an or. But let's just talk about shocks. The bottom line is it's likely to be of a small benefit in a small proportion of patients, but my sense is that it's probably a good idea. Why? The majority of patients in VF can be defibrillated with a single shock. The majority of patients, if the first shock doesn't work, will be defibrillated with a second shock. The numbers are very hard to come by. And the reason it's hard to know is because it's impossible in the field to know if you've shocked somebody, whether VF terminated and restarted within two seconds or whether VF continued. And the reason is, is that because your amplifiers are saturated right after the shock and you don't know what's going on. And there's a belief that many so-called failed shocks are actually successful shocks which then reinitiate within 200 milliseconds. That's a fifth of a second. You can't tell that by looking at the screen. So we have a problem. Now, we do know from the cardioversion literature that many patients are resistant to electrical cardioversion in atrial fibrillation, where you, you can take your time and understand uh, what's going on. What do on. you know about atrial fibrillation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the yeah. way, audience, 
Dr. Dorian is one of the world authorities on atrial fibrillation. One day, we're going to have to get you and Ian Steele in here together that to fight it out. a blast, but one of us would not come out alive, and I think it would be me. <laughs> you can strike Sorry. that. You, you can, you're going to quote me on that. Anyway, um, and in cardioversion, about 80% of patients that are resistant to a single shock can be effectively cardioverted with dual shocks, AP and left and right paddles. So clearly dual shocks have a physiological and research basis. There's two reasons why the dual shocks might work. One is the summation of the electrical energy, just a bigger bang for your buck. But the other is that the electrical pathway in order to defibrillate successfully should traverse the heart. It's just simple geometry. If you draw a line between the middle of the right-sided pad and the left-sided pad, and that line does not go through the left ventricle, it's hard to defibrillate. So if any of your listeners ever watch ER, they'll see that the, the docs putting on the, the paddles or the manual pads, they just put both hands on the top of the chest. And we know that that doesn't work, right? The lateral pad has to be in the armpit. Has to be in the armpit because if you draw a line now between the two pads, it goes through the heart. If the lateral pad's not in the armpit, and sometimes it just doesn't get enough into the armpit, then the current pathway mostly goes through the right ventricle, which is an anterior structure. Mm. The AP paddles go right through the heart. So maybe some of it is in better geometry of current pathway, and some of it may be just the summation of the two shocks. The bottom line is, if I have a patient who is truly shock resistant, a minority, but it can happen, then there's reasonable reason to believe that the dual shock strategy is more likely to result in successful defibrillation. Okay, great. So I have a 60-year-old male in front of me with diabetes, hypertension, and a previous MI. He's in our emergency department with chest pain, and he has a cardiac arrest right in front of me. I'm going to shock him. It doesn't work. I'm going to start amiodarone or lidocaine. I'm going to shock him again. That still doesn't work. I might give a second dose of amiodarone. Shock them. If that doesn't work, I can try dual shock therapy. Correct. Oftentimes in a cardiac arrest in an uncontrolled setting, in the out-of-hospital setting, as well as in the ED, we don't have the pads positioned properly. So I would say to you on that second shock, when you go to give that second shock in your scenario with your aging patient, I would look carefully at the way you had positioned those pads before you give the second shock. So I think our listeners are going to need some kind of bottom line for this in entire paper. So is it time for us to just stop messing around with these medications altogether? All this was a negative trial. Should we just focus on rapid defibrillation, bystander CPR, high-quality CPR, or do you still think there's some kind of role for these medications hidden in this data here? So first of all, you have to remember that this is a trial of a form of amiodarone that's not available for purchase in Canada. So this is Nexterone. Nexterone was chosen for this trial for two reasons. One, it comes in a preloaded syringe. So a pre-hospital trial where you want to get the drug in fast, this was the right drug to use. The second is, is that the drug doesn't have the diluent that we talked about before that causes hypotension. And therefore, we could address that perceived adverse event of hypotension post-arrest. So this drug's not available. And so the drug that is available to us is lidocaine or the old form of amiodrome, which has the diluent in it. And the other premise you should keep in mind is that there's no harm. So if I was talking in ambulance, lidocaine is much more easier to use in the pre-hospital situation. And I can use it in all these patients without worry of harm. And it will most likely be effective in, or as effective in all the witness cases. If I was stalking in ED and I could have access to the Nexterone, then it would have been the better choice because most of your cardiac arrests that you witness as an eMERGE doc are witnessed where the physician watches the cardiac arrest and treats it. And we know in this tiny little subgroup that Nexterone was more effective than placebo. So to be very practical here, you are still using these medications and 
which patients are you deciding to use them in? And we use them in all patients with VF or VTAC, all patients in the pre-hospital situation. And you will continue to do that after this trial? And I will continue to do that after this trial. And Dr. Dorian, I think you have slightly different take on the data? Yes, I think based on this study alone, I completely agree with Dr. Morrison. It it seems to be a better choice to use either drug, and there's nothing to suggest that one is better than the other as opposed to nothing. That said, I think for if I was in an in-hospital situation, and I'm going to extrapolate from in-hospital to the field, in an in-hospital situation, we have other data, primarily data in electrical storm, where we have benefit from amiodarone, essentially no data with lidocaine. And electrical storm is not the same thing, but it's c- close enough in my view. That's recurrent EF. It's using the amiodarone that is you, currently you, on the shelf and available Using the old-fashioned tween-80 polyethylene glycol amiodarone or electrical storm. We have reasonable evidence that it works in a controlled trial. Lidocaine and an acute myocardial infarction, we have reason to believe that it is not helpful and may have some risks. So that in the in-hospital situation, knowing that about 50% of my patients with cardiac arrest have myocardial ischemia as the proximate cause, my preference is amiodarone. But I will freely admit to a bias, and this is uh, considering the totality of the evidence, not only from this trial. So we have a conundrum. I think what I would advocate doing in the emergency room or in a witnessed paramedic witnessing a patient or somebody who has chest pain and then develops VF, I think that's a different scenario where we have more information than in the difficult circumstance of a medic getting to the home of a patient where you know nothing about the patient, where absolutely true that we can't really say whether amiodarone or lidocaine are definitively better than placebo, we're really not sure, or one is better than the other, probably not. But if I was an eMERGE doc thinking more about my own scenario that I am likely to see, just a different perspective from the EMS director or the medic in the field, I'd be more likely to want to use amiodarone for the reasons I mentioned. Okay, so blending those two opinions together for the paramedics out there, the out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, certainly for the witnessed arrests, VFib, pulses VTAC, If you have the new form of the amiodarone, you can use that. If you don't have the new form of the amiodarone, lidocaine is probably your best bet simply because you can get it in really fast. In the witnessed in-hospital cardiac arrest, amiodarone might be your go-to. In your unwitnessed cardiac arrest, they're probably dead and it doesn't matter what we do. Yes. Okay. That is correct. And there's no harm with giving it in that unwitnessed group. No harm. Okay. So it was a really tough decision to decide whether to do the ALPS trial for this Journal Jam podcast or the other incredible huge trial in cardiac arrest that was just recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the trial of continuous or interrupted chest compressions during CPR. Now, Dr. Morrison, we had discussed at length in our previous podcast, minimizing interruptions in chest compressions. And what I took away from that podcast was that we should do everything we can to minimize chest compressions. Correct. And now we have this trial that says that continuous chest compressions, that's like the holy grail, is no better than interrupted chest compressions. So can you give us sort of the take-home message from the continuous versus interrupted chest compressions trial. I've heard some interpretations that we can take away from the trial that continuous chest compressions are no better than the best possible done CPR with minimal interruptions. I've also heard that it has actually more to do with bagging the patient too much and increasing the intrathoracic pressure that would decrease venous return. What's the takeaway message from the continuous versus interrupted trial from the New England Journal? The takeaway is, if you can do really good 30 to 2, there's probably no advantage to switching to continuous. But it is rare in a pre-hospital, and it's even rarer in an ED, that people perform CPR at the quality that was done in that trial. 
quality in the control arm, the 30 to 2 arm, is probably the best CPR that I have seen in EMS studies. So we had compression fractions of between 0.72 and 0.78, and we had perishock pauses, which were really short, and we had the rate and depth was dead on what is optimal for survival as described in observational studies. So there were so few interruptions in the 30 to 2 arm that it was the 10 to 1 was minimally different. Mm. Now, my personal opinion is in the ED and the pre-hospital, and and frankly for most of the in-hospital, you do not see it enough. And therefore, to really know how to do 30 to 2 well, you must use simulation, you must use a NASCAR kind of mentality, you must train people over and over and over again, and we never do that in the ED well. So in those circumstances, I would train people to do continuous compressions because it's easier to do with fewer interruptions, and you're more likely to get high-quality output. The trial was intended to show that continuous was better than 30 to 2. It failed in its mission, but we shouldn't be paralyzed by that finding to say we don't change anything. And instead, we should use it, in my opinion, as reasonable evidence that the two are similar enough that a system or a doctor or a a team should pick whichever method is more likely to yield the most hands-on time and the most effective chest compressions without overventilation. So same results, but the interpretation I would give is this now allows us to do what we all think is more teachable, more practical, with care not to overventilate, and that's continuous chest compressions. I love you guys. So do we want to close with one final bonus question? Because it's rare that we get the opportunity to speak with two researchers who are at the cutting edge of cardiac arrest research. And so really, as an insider, what's in in store for the future? What is cardiac arrest care going to look like in 15 years? So I think that if we could measure brain flow immediately during the resuscitation, we could guide our care. You could be guided by a number that would say, yes, give epi or don't give epi. And personally, I think that would guide us much better than what we do now, which is we blindly just throw epinephrine at them every three to five minutes. So there is a NEARS infrared spectroscopy device, which is commercially available, but has been found not to be particularly reliable in low-flow states. So there is a new device that has been developed, trialed it in the back of an ambulance, putting it on normal people. Just It's like a little headband. goes on their head. They drive them over potholes and through difficult circumstances just to see if it measures blood flow through the brain. And I think if we can continue on this vein and develop a visual guide that tells us what the flow is into the brain, we should be able to direct exactly how much epinephrine we give and when we give it. And I think that will save more lives. Let me remind your listeners that I've tried this device on myself and I'm not going to tell you what it showed. Uh, However, not have any flow above uh, the neck. I think when we resuscitate in a person with cardiac arrest, we're primarily interested in two organs that are vulnerable to low flow, and they're 99% of the problem. One is blood flow and oxygen supply to the heart. If you can't get the heart restarted, the brain will never function again. So we need to restart the heart. And the drugs that keep the heart restarted and keep it functioning may be different than the drugs that need the brain restarted and functioning. So we're interested during cardiac arrest in the instantaneous health of the heart or how sick it is and the instantaneous health of brain tissue. There's two measurement strategies, exactly as Laurie was saying. One is the near-infrared spectroscopy, which gives you an instantaneous measure of the oxygen content or the oxygenated hemoglobin content of brain tissue. When we know that, we can tailor or titrate various kinds of therapies. As it turns out, both aortic flow and carotid flow are poor measures of brain neuronal health. We cannot assume that a good perfusion pressure necessarily is associated with good brain health because some of the drugs like epinephrine increase blood pressure and reduce brain blood flow, as an example. Certainly higher doses of epinephrine. But if we measure the 
desired outcome, then we have something to treat. For the heart, you can't measure cardiac blood flow because the device doesn't penetrate through the thorax. You can have an, a window into the health of the heart by the electrical signature of a ventricular fibrillation. That's an area that's been researched, and I think it's going to continue. If you look at the coarseness of ventricular fibrillation, to reduce it to some ridiculously simple concept, the higher the amplitude and the more coarse the ventricular fibrillation, the less sick the heart is. And you can mathematically demodulate those concepts into a number or a metric and say, if the VF is sufficiently amplitudinally large and coarse, then you should shock now or continue CPR or do this. If the VF is fine, then you should do something different. Well, you guys have some really exciting research ahead of you in the future. I can just imagine now all the patients coming in, looking in like Bjorn Borg, for those of you who are old enough to know who Bjorn Borg was. I know yeah, perfectly with a, well. With that the headband. Except he had this Swedish stare. Right. <laughs> which is very hard to replicate. Yes. There is something else that I think that, you know, in 15 years might become the norm, which I think might even have a much bigger, bigger impact. But there's a huge number of patients out there who the first responder is the bystander. And if we could improve bystander compression rates and the use of an AED, we would save a lot more lives than all this paraphernalia at the patient level. And the ways to do that are that are futuristic is one is an app on your phone that you download into it. It's called Pulse Point. You can do it right now. You can download the app. And if we were linked, which we're not in Canada, but in the United States, the Pulse Point app is linked to the dispatch center and tells you where to go. So if you're at Home Depot and someone has a cardiac arrest in aisle two, you can respond. So that, sh that has been shown. There was a nice randomized control trial where they geographically randomized areas of, uh, of a city and showed that more bystander response was mediated through the app. So if we could get that into Canada, that would make a huge difference. And the second one is drones. And there's a group of engineers right now at U of T who are working on a drone model to take the AED to the location because 70% of cardiac arrests don't occur in public settings. They actually occur in the home. And as more and more of us get into condominiums and vert vertically challenged, we need AEDs. And what the drone system is a perfectly good way of getting the AED to the front of the apartment block. Wow. Or even better, you need a big D with a little circle on your balcony. So you can land so the, the defibrillator on your on balcony. Your balcony. <laughs> What's also really good with the drones is it comes with an audio. So the dispatcher can coach compressions and can coach the correct use and can actually see the patient. So it's more than just delivery of a defibrillator. You actually, when the defibrillator comes, it has the capacity to, to have a, a camera so that the dispatcher could be a trained dispatcher could then coach the patient. Because even though you can train them and have all the certificates in the world, at the point of contact, many bystanders balk at doing chest compressions, and a coach is all it takes to make a difference. I'm so excited for the futuristic days of Jetson-style flying paramedic robots. It's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs>